Luke chapter 7, beginning in the first verse. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with him. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and the large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So when he, who was dead, sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother, And fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? At that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet... This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, 
To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. And one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with a fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. This morning we come to an interesting section in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 7. And it's introduced... In the last verse of our previous section, verse 17, and this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. This report went out. And one place that that report went was to John. As in verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him concerning all things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And the reason why I say this is interesting, this is curious, is because here you have this man who is commissioned to bear witness to Christ, to bear witness to the fact that Jesus was the coming one, the Messiah promised by God, suddenly acting as if he didn't know that, suddenly acting as if he had had his doubts now and was looking, was grasping for something there with regard to to Jesus And I do not claim that this is going to be easy for us to understand. We need the Holy Spirit's help to understand this situation and understand why this has happened. 
But all that for aside as to what motivated John to do this at that moment. That aside, John has nonetheless posed a very good question for us. And there's no greater question that could be imagined in this. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? That's the great question. There is no other question that means much in this world other than that one. Are you the coming one? Let's not forget what our situation is in this world. It is not a a good situation. It is not a comfortable situation. It is not a, a situation in which we can live. We were born dead in our sins and trespasses. Our first parents fell. We know that Adam fell, and with, with him, all the rest of us fell as well. And we were born, therefore, absolutely dead in our sins and trespasses. And we were born into a city that was set for destruction. That, was our, that is our situation if we live in this world apart from Christ. Just like what it says in Pilgrim's Progress. It's like the world was before the flood. It's like Sodom before its destruction. We are in such a a city, we are in such a world, it is set for destruction, and only one thing matters, and that is to find the way of escape. To look for that one whom God in his mercy is sending to rescue his people, to save us. That is the only thing that matters. And so if Jesus were not the coming one, then it was important for them to know that. And if Jesus is not the coming one, it is important for us to know that. Because we ought to be looking for another. He's got that much right, certainly. You have to decide that much. If he's not the coming one, then you need to look for another because you must find someone. You must find a savior. You must find someone to rescue you. That much is absolutely clear. Because either you are looking for the coming one or you are resting, you are believing in the one who has come. You have come to to find this salvation. It's certainly one of the two things. Now, if, if Jesus wasn't the coming one, They were pinning their hopes on the wrong one. They were actually in danger of blasphemy here. They were referring to him and speaking to him and interacting with him as if he were the incarnate God, as if he were the Christ. And that would be blasphemous. And of course, worse than that, they would find that this would be like a broken reed, one that's not able to help them in the end. That they themselves would be cast into destruction for their sins in eternal hell. And this coming one, this one that they'd falsely put their hope in, actually fails them. If he were not the coming one, it would have been very important for them to know that. And of course, that meant that they needed to be looking for another. That search would need to come. But if he were the coming one, then the search is over. They need, we need to believe, don't we? If he is the coming one, then they and, and we and everyone else in the world, that is the most important thing for us to do, to get that settled, to say he is the coming one and to be saved by him. Well, this is the question. Is Jesus the coming one? Now, we have to understand that most of the Jews of that day got that question wrong, and to this day, they still get it wrong. They took option B. And the question, is Jesus the coming one, or do we look for another one? They said, is B, we look for another one, and they're still looking in vain. We know that, sadly, that is a possibility. But I pray that would not be the possibility for us, that we would understand that truly he is the coming one, and we do not look for another one. We look for him to return, because not only was he the coming one, and did he come back then, but he is still the coming one, and we look for him to come on the clouds of glory. And that is of utmost importance 
for God's people. So is Jesus the coming one? That's the title of our sermon this morning. And the points are these. First, the question. Second, Jesus is the coming one. And third, there is no other. So our first point has to do with the the question itself. Before we get, in fact, to the question that John posed to Jesus, I want to ask a couple others that will hopefully help us to understand the, the context for John's question. The first one, who is this coming one that John the Baptist said? He didn't really give much explanation. He didn't send a further Um, list of things that would explain it. He spoke as if everyone knew what he was talking about. That may not be the case for us this morning. So who is the coming one? Well, the coming one was declared from the very beginning, way back in Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you, speaking of the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And it's very clear then, Although in very, in quite rightly, seed form, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, we have the, in seed form the gospel. Not in all of its clarity, but we have these hints. That someone is going to be dealing with Satan. Someone is going to be dealing with this enemy of God's people. And he's going to come from among Eve's offspring. But the question is who and when. They didn't know. And Job, one of the earlier books uh, dealing with the time before, we think, before Abraham, in Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And so we know there's going to be a Redeemer, and one day he's going to stand on the earth. But who and when? We don't know. We don't have a lot of further details. But the details keep coming in God's word. God sends the prophets. And in the Psalms and in the prophets, there is, there is more detail about this coming one comes to us. In Zechariah 2.10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. And we begin to understand that it's not just someone in a long series of prophets that is coming, but it is the Lord himself. God is somehow going to dwell among them. And then we have Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know what that means. It means God with us. God himself was going to be the coming one. And he was going to come in the, ver- the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was going to take on human flesh. This was going to be the God-man living among his people. He was the coming one. An amazing thing. Now between all these things, and I did not begin to scratch the surface of all the, the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. You could spend hours doing that. But between these things, everyone knew that there was someone coming. Everyone knew that the Lord was sending someone. All faithful Jews knew that. But even the Samaritan woman knew that much. You think about the, how, what a sinner she was. And, and how ignorant. She was no great theologian, but even she knew this much. John 4.25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. Knew that much. He was coming. That's who this coming one was. And the next question, as we ask these, these questions related to John's question, okay, that's who the coming one was. What about John? Okay, we've got to understand. Who's, what question was it that he's asking, and who is asking the question? And, and John, we know some things about him. In fact, we find out some more even in this very, very chapter, don't we? 
But the first time that John the Baptist is explained to us is in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, in what we call the, the prologue. John 1.6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And you see what I'm saying. This was his job, and, and job doesn't begin to cover it. This was his, the whole reason for which he came into existence. He was sent for one purpose, and it was to bear witness that Jesus Christ was the coming one. He was the light who came into the world to give light to all. And he did. It wasn't just his job, which he then rejected or turned away from. It was, in fact, exactly what he did. He did bear witness to the light. In John 1.29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the Son of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. We know it couldn't possibly mean in terms of birth order, because there was the six months between them. Couldn't have been that. He's before him because he's eternal, of course. John bore witness. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now here's the clincher. Here we go. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Ladies and gentlemen, how clear, much clearer could a witness possibly be? John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, and he bore testimony. That was his purpose in life, was to bear testimony to this one. He is the Son of God. Now the question then comes, where? Where did Jesus' question come? Where did he, at what point in his life, in his situation, would it come to him to ask a question, are you the coming one or do we look for another? When he has said with his own lips that God the Father said to him, the one you see, the Holy Spirit, that's him. And then he testified publicly, that's him. He is the coming one. How did that happen? Did it come from unbelief? Where's John living at the moment? What's his residence? It's jail. He is in jail because he has been a faithful witness to Christ. So that's probably not the case. What we can look at is the immediate context of this, and it, it begins to be a little bit more obvious. Now, think about this. Verse 15. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Pretty amazing miracle, right? And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us. Great prophet. And God has visited his people. And we already looked at that, and we said, When it said God is visiting his people, this is God with us. This is the Christ. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. That is the common people. They are saying this. And those things, not just what Jesus did, he, but also what people were saying about him, came to John the Baptist. The ordinary people were saying, a great prophet has arisen, that God has visited his people. And you can imagine then that John is in some anticipation. 
Because one thing that hasn't happened, he's already knows, he's already seen the Holy Spirit come, he's already seen Jesus do these great miracles in fulfillment of prophecy as we're going to see. But what we haven't seen yet is the great public announcement, the great public reception of which everyone was waiting for. Because when the Messiah comes, surely everyone's going to know about it. When the Messiah comes, surely there's going to come a, t- a moment of recognition in which the whole nation is going to embrace their Savior like they eventually embraced King David. That moment hadn't happened yet. And you see, far from the situation in which Jesus' ministry was at a low point, in which he maybe tried to raise someone from the dead and couldn't, or something like that. And then that news got to him, and and John says, Oh, are you the coming one, or are we looking for another? It's not like that. It's at the height of his ministry, at the height of these miracles, in which people are starting to talk. It's almost as if John is trying to move things a step further here. And said, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Say it. Say it. Make your declaration. Move ahead. Do what we're all waiting for you to do. There's no doubt that John the Baptist already knew who Jesus was. Just like Jesus' own disciples, right? Because it's only in a couple of of chapters, what's going to happen? Peter's going to make this pronouncement as well. In Luke 9.20... Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Yeah, hallelujah, praise God. He is the Christ of God. And what immediately happens after that? Jesus tells him, okay, good, you've got that. Now, let me tell you what my mission is. My mission is to lay down my life for the sins of the people and to die on the cross. And the third day I'll be risen. They never never hear that, do they? Never quite hear on the third day I'm going to be risen. They only hear I'm going to die. And that's the part that Peter doesn't like. There would be no widespread public acceptance of Jesus. There would be no immediate vindication for those who had ventured all to to trust in Christ and to follow him, that they were hoping. It wasn't going to be like that this time. Jesus was going to suffer and die at the hands of the Gentiles, and Peter was not prepared for that at all. He says in Matthew 16:22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. You wonder whether this was the sense in which Don the Baptist was thinking right now. He wanted that widespread public announcement. And that's the sense in which I think we should take Jesus' message to John in verse 23. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The offense that Jesus is concerned about is not that Jesus does, that John does not know or believe who Jesus is. He knows that. That's not the offense. That's not the offense that he's concerned about with his own disciples like Peter. They know who he is. The offense concerns the nature of his mission. And that offense was all too real. The fence is that John may not be clear as to what Jesus was going to be doing and what that was going to look like in this world and that he was already in danger of stumbling. You know, Matthew 26, 31 says that Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the eve of his departure. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. These disciples knew who Jesus was. They believed him. They loved him. But they were not prepared for him to be arrested that night. 
They were not prepared for him to be beaten and to be put to death. They simply were not prepared for that. And they stumbled, just like Jesus said that they would. That is the sense, I think, in which we take Jesus' warning to John when he says, Blessed is the one who does not stumble, is not scandalized. That's what that word means. Is not scandalized by me. There was not going to be a widespread public acknowledgement or acceptance of Jesus Christ this time in this world. Now, that was the question, I think. That's where the question is coming from. As John is considering these things and says the point is about here, I'm wondering why Jesus just doesn't say it. I've already said it. I've already borne witness to him. And now he's doing these miracles. It looks like everything's set for us, our, our, this whole nation, to cast off this, this situation we're in of, of unbelief and so forth and to receive the Messiah whom God has so clearly given us. But that moment would not come. But I want us to know that nonetheless, Jesus is the coming one. He is the one who has come into this world. And I want us to see, for instance, the evidence that Jesus himself gave of that. When he was asked the question, he said, look, look at what I'm doing here. What is the evidence? In verse 21, in that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things that you've seen and heard. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Uh, only Christ could do these things. Only Christ could do these things. In John ten twenty four, when the Jews ask him in, in a different way, in a different way, I think, the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long will you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, not so they could believe, but so they could unbelieve and disbelieve him. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Only the Christ could do these things. And these works bear public witness. It wasn't that Jesus hadn't made it clear enough. These things were very clear to anyone who had eyes. And yet they still did not believe. They still didn't. Now more than the fact that these works happened, I want us also to see that they are all precisely in fulfillment of prophecy because that little section I think most of us in our our Bibles have that um, in some way indicated uh, that these that this is a quotation from some material and it is a these are quotations from the prophet Isaiah every one of them the blind see well that's from Isaiah 29 18 in that day the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness and also Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The lame walk, where is that from? Well, that's also Isaiah 35. Then the lame shall leap as deer. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, that's Isaiah 29, 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of this book. And the ears of the deaf shall be in stopped. That's from Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 again. The dead are raised, Isaiah twenty six nineteen. Your dead shall live. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Well, that's Isaiah sixty one one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And if these people knew that prophet Isaiah, and we think that they did, if John the Baptist knew this, and we know that he did, 
This was all in perfect fulfillment of prophecy. And when these things happen, when this word has been declared to the whole nation, they all had the scriptures in front of them. They all had them in their synagogues. And when these things happen, then they should know this is the Messiah. He has come. The announcement has been made in the clearest possible way. All the prophecies are fulfilled. Believe it. Well, Jesus was the coming one. That was very clear to John. Very clear to anyone who could see that these prophecies were absolutely fulfilled. And I want us also to see that he is yet the coming one for us. Because one of the things that were hard for them to figure out, they didn't quite see this much, is that the whole thing was not going to be completed in Jesus' first coming. They looked at these prophecies and they said, look, he's going to do this and he's also going to do that. He is going to do all these miracles. There's something about him suffering, but that's maybe just for a brief moment, I'm sure. Because immediately it goes on to say that he's going to bring in the end. He's going to, he's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to reign on earth. And he, all of us are going to reign along with him. And, and these things seem to be very clear. We understand that there's a minor delay between those two things. When Jesus came the first time 2,000 years ago, and whenever he returns, which may be very soon. And then the rest of these things are going to happen. They look to Jesus as the coming one, and so do we. Revelation 1, 78, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. He who is and who was and who is to come. That is fundamentally who Jesus is. The one who was and is and is to come. He came the first time and he came to suffer and to die. And he is coming the second time to complete all the rest of those prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. For him to judge the wicked. For him to save completely all of, of God's people. And you know what? Finally then is going to happen the day that John the Baptist was looking forward to. The day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And all those who had ever ventured on Jesus Christ and suffered for it are going to be vindicated. When there will be a, the most public imaginable proclamation and acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day didn't happen back then. But it is happening. It will happen. Jesus Christ is coming. And I want to say this, thirdly, that there is no other. That was the question that he asked. Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And I want us to understand that there absolutely is no other. These are two interrelated questions. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered the first question utterly, completely. There is no way for there to be any doubt from anyone that he was the coming one. And he answered the other one along with it. If he is the coming one and we know that he is, then we do not look for another. We don't look for another. You know, that was the situation in John, because sometimes things that Jesus say are hard. Sometimes the things that he says to us are challenging. Sometimes theologically they're difficult. Maybe we've been raised in a certain way, and we'd always heard that, well, maybe, you know, the Lord isn't sovereign, and everything's just down to our own choice. And Jesus says, only the ones that I call to myself, only the ones that I give power to hear my words 
come to me and we're offended and it's hard and it's difficult. Or maybe he comes to us in our sin and he says, you need to stop doing that. He rebukes us in our sin and that's hard and that's difficult. Or maybe there's other aspects of these things that are difficult. And you know what what John chapter 6 verse 66 says, because his disciples were in the same situation. Jesus had just said a very hard saying to him. In, In this case, it actually had to do with his sovereignty. He says to them very plainly that only the ones he calls are going to come. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to his disciples, do you also want to go away? You see, it had become hard for them. But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter has got it right. He's got it right more often than he's got it wrong. You sometimes wonder how he could have ended up denying Christ. But he is a picture of God's grace. He He knows the truth. And that is a good way of putting it. Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? There is no alternative. We cannot look for another one. The only one whom God has sent has come, and he is coming, and there's no one else to look to. And strangely, strangely, sometimes God's people have a difficulty along this way. We look for something else, someone else, beyond or in addition to or beside, in place of the one that we already have. There's no one else. Of course, to those who have not yet put your faith in Christ, this is, this is your situation. This is the world in which you live. You're looking for the one, and you, you wonder if it's Jesus or is there another one to pick from. And I want you to know that there's no other one that you can possibly be saved by. That's what the, the issue in Acts 4.10. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... Whom God raised from the dead, by this, by him, this man stands before you whole. This is the healing of the of the man, the lame man. And then this stone which was rejected by you builders has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. And here's the thing, here's the key. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. No other name. There is no other, and we need not look for him. If you've come looking for salvation, if you've come looking for a Savior, you've found him in Jesus Christ, and there is no other. And that's the first and obvious application of these things, is that we need to make up our mind about Jesus. We need to make up our mind. John 11. I had a lot of references to John, haven't I? Maybe it's... On my mind. But John eleven twenty five. This is speaking to a grieving woman. This is speaking to a friend of Jesus, a personal friend. You know that he was friends and loved Mary and Martha and also their brother Lazarus. The only problem is that Lazarus had died. And he was coming to this house of mourning. And he says in John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. 
You see, the moment for Jesus to have a universal public acknowledgement, the day in which every knee was going to bow and which every tongue was going to confess was not then, but there was another thing that was happening. And that individually and privately, people were coming to a confession. It wasn't the whole nation, but some were. And it was not that Jesus was avoiding pursuing that issue with them. In fact, he comes to us today in very much the same way and presses the issue upon and asks what you... He asks his disciples. Some men say, what do men say that I am? They say, some, some Elijah, one of the prophets. And he says, what about, what about you? What do you, who do you think that I am? You're the Christ, son of the living God. He comes to his friend in her grief. Do you believe this? Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that. We need to come make up our mind about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Life is to be had in these things. And there's no other choice. There's no other decision. And secondly, I would say, and I think this is probably the main point of the passage we need to watch out that we're not offended in Christ that was the application to all this the application the main one of course implied in all of that is that we need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but the application point for John the Baptist and you have to wonder at this here's Jesus Christ speaking to the one who was raised higher than any man who had ever lived the one who was brought into this world in order to bear witness of him and he is applying a sermon to him And here's his application. Blessed is he who is not offended in me. Because he knows that even John the Baptist was in danger of being stumbled, of being scandalized by Jesus Christ. And he says, blessed is the one who's not scandalized, who's not offended because of me. You know, there's that horrible horrible warning in the parable of the, the, the sower or the seeds in Matthew 13. And Jesus speaks of four different categories of seeds and only one of them is saved. The, the seed that's immediately taken away, the seed that falls on rocky ground that springs up for a moment and then falls away, the, the seed that falls among the thorns and is choked and only one brings fruit. And we know that the fruit is the key that points to the reality of the Christian life. None of the others make it. And the way that that second category of seed is described is this, yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he what? He what? He stumbles, actually. That's that word scandal again. He is scandalized because of this. That's what happens to him. There are many ways in which we can be stumbled because of Jesus Christ. Now, some, of course, stumble just to the mere nature of the gospel. Why was it that there wasn't a public acknowledgement? John the Baptist didn't know the half of it. He didn't, he, he, even he, in all of his knowledge, was not clear of exactly what Jesus was. He's a lamb of God there to take away the sin of the world. What's going to happen to that lamb? He's going to be put to death. He's going to bleed and die for his people. And just the nature of the gospel itself, that is a great stumbling stone. That's what Romans 9 says with regard to Israel. That's why they stumbled. That's why there wasn't that public acknowledgement and widespread acceptance by the whole nation. 
Romans 9.31, But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. They were scandalized by this cause of offense, this, this scandal. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It is the very nature of Christ, the crucified and risen Messiah, that is a stumbling stone. It is offensive to our own self-righteousness. Because Jesus says, actually, you're, you, know, you come and you say, I may not be perfect, but I have done a few things. And um, I, I don't say this to everyone, but let me tell you how many things that I've done for you, Lord. And Jesus says, these things are worthless Take them away. They are as filthy rags in my sight. And people are offended because they want to seek it by their own righteousness rather than by Christ and by faith. And people are stumbled at the idea of the cross. We know that it is foolishness. It is a stumbling block to the, to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Greeks. We preach this Savior, this crucified and risen Savior, and it is foolishness to them. And every once in a while, we almost pull a John the Baptist and we say, boy, these people aren't coming. And, and they think what we believe is foolishness. You know, we, we talk about the, the Lord creating the whole world and the, the whole universe in the space of six days by the word of his power, and they make fun of us. This gospel is it's a bit strange. And I think we sometimes become tempted to be scandalized by these things. And we, we maybe stumble a little bit. And we begin to think, well, you know, this is a strange thing that they're not coming. But maybe if we had more amenities in our church building, maybe if we took off some of the hard edges of these rough sayings, you know, that was, that was a bit not unimpolitic of Jesus back in John 6. Here he was just absolutely laying down the law, giving them hardcore weapons-grade theology that they were not able to bear and was offensive to them. If they just trimmed off the edges here and there, then those people would still be there. They would, have, they would still be in attendance. And we're tempted to be scandalized by that. And I think the church is in great danger of being scandalized today by these things. But you know what the word of Jesus Christ is? It's the same word to us as it was to John the Baptist, his friend, his perhaps cousin, this one that had risen higher than anyone else. Blessed is he who is not scandalized. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Well, thirdly and finally in these applications, we must never forget that Jesus is yet the coming one. The question back then was, are you the coming one? The question today is, are you the coming one? Do we recognize he's the coming one? Because funny enough, sometimes we have people who recognize he did come, but they don't recognize that he's coming again. Sometimes we acknowledge with our mouths even that we know that he is coming, but that doesn't at all play into our lives. That, that has no role for us at all. We're not living as if we were expecting Jesus Christ, the coming one. But Revelation 22, 7 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In verse 10, he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is at hand. Don't keep this word to yourself. The time is at hand. 
And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And it's very clear what the Lord Jesus Christ means by putting this in nearly the last verse of all of Scripture. It is that you must never forget this. If there's one thing that you remember from this, don't forget that I am coming quickly. My reward is with me, and my judgment as well. And you should act accordingly. He is the coming one, and we must live our lives in absolute accordance with that present reality. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you as those who no doubt have been scandalized, have been offended, have stumbled over time. Lord, if if John the Baptist was in danger of that, if Peter actually did stumble and fall, in fact, if all of your disciples were made to fall at that, that time, then Lord, we are no better. We recognize, Lord, the offense of the cross. We know our propensity to fall. We pray, Lord, therefore, that you grant us steel in our backs and bronze in our face that we would not be offended. But rather, Lord, you'd give us ears to hear even more, to receive all that you have for us. And Lord, certainly to live our life in present expectation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, our weak tendencies. But Lord, you are strong and your Holy Spirit is omnipotent. How we pray, Lord, that you would work through us mightily. And that we would not be offended by the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.